0: All right, all right, all right. Welcome back. Misfit Nation. All right, welcome to the Misfit Nation, Betsy Kulikowski. She's a certified occupational safety specialist, holds a degree in emergency management, and is the author of the Veritex Codex Paranormal Thriller series. How are you, Betsy? Welcome to the show.
1: I'm good. Thank you so much for having me on this morning.
0: Uh, thanks for being flexible and, uh, and understanding uh, after our little miss up last night, but here we are. We're ready to get this thing going. Uh, it's the week of Christmas here. Uh, everyone's having uh, anxiety and hoping things go well. Uh, tell us a little bit about yourself and uh, how you got into writing and, of course, emergency management, which are both of them. I'm, I'm very passionate about both subjects, so go ahead. <laughs>
1: All right. Well, I I started my career in, I actually started in safety uh, at the age of 18. I went to work for the Oklahoma Department of Labor uh, as a temporary uh, clerk doing asbestos abatement licensing. Um, I worked my way up to the role of asbestos inspector. And at the time I was working as an asbestos inspector, we suffered one of the worst tragedies in Oklahoma when the Murrah bombing occurred. And I was about two miles from where it happened. So uh, within 24 to 48 hours, we were boots on the ground doing building assessments, checking to see where damaged asbestos was, looking to see what kind of efforts were gonna be needed to clean up if any buildings needed to be shut down. So we spent several weeks working on that project. Um, We were in the water resources board building doing our assessment when they condemned it. Uh, So we moved over to the journal record building and we were over there, had a team going through that thing when they condemned it and we had to leave. Uh, and then we spent quite a bit of time at the YMCA building working there, um, identifying asbestos that was damaged and, and determining what kind of abatement was going to be needed before they could finish tearing those buildings down. So that was my first foray into emergency management. Um, and it was definitely an eye-opening experience. It was um, traumatic. It was everything you would expect it would would be. And I think probably one of the most, Mm, moving things that I remember from that experience was walking down the streets of downtown Oklahoma City and having it be completely abandoned and glass scattered across the ground just shining in the sun like diamonds, it was, it was beautiful and horrifying at the same time. So I really kind of got my interest into the this the emergency management side at that point, but I really kind of thought that was the end of it I didn't think that I would ever really go back in to do it any kind of work like that. Um, I went on to become a safety consultant with the OSHA Consultation Division. Uh, I worked with businesses, helping them set up their safety and health management systems and evaluating what they already had and finding ways to make it better, make their businesses more profitable, save money from you know unnecessary injuries and illnesses. Uh, and it was something I found out I was really passionate about, I really loved doing. Um, and then the World Trade Center attack happened. Um, and we knew it was going to be a big disaster. It was going to take a lot of work because And the OSHA office was located in the World Trade Center uh, building one of the one of the towers, so we knew that they were going to need help. Uh, Within two weeks, we knew that we were going to be called to go and because we had experience at the Murrah bombing, um, they were going to need us so uh, that happened in September and in March, the following year I was deployed um, 16 days at the World Trade Center first job was safety and health assessment in the pit. Uh, While they're doing body recovery and doing, um, you know, the the parking garage that had pancake, they're in there still looking for first responders. So I spent 16 days working at that site. Um, Was really, really a difficult process to go through and to see what people were were dealing with. And, um, you know, our our goal was to make sure that workers had the right respirators, that they were fit tested. We'd evaluate for safety hazards. We'd investigate near-miss incidents. Um, Just trying to find ways to make sure that the workers were protected and sometimes our job was to protect them from them in spite of them, because they were in a hurry, they were trying to find their fallen comrades. And their safety was the last thing on their minds, so we had a real challenge with that disaster, but you know we did everything that we could and, and left really feeling like we had accomplished quite a bit. Um, And again, I thought that was going to be the end of it. I didn't think I'd ever have to get called to anything like that. And then Katrina happened. And that was right in our own back door because Louisiana is in region six, which is part of where Oklahoma is. So uh, I was on the second team deployed uh, to go into New Orleans and we actually were the first team actually allowed to go into New Orleans. Uh, the day we arrived we thought we were going to stay in baton rouge but we were informed that they had officially declared new orleans dewatered army corps of engineer terms uh, and it meant basically it was dry we could go in and got a hotel we didn't think we'd be in a hotel <laughs> it was actually the hotel my family stayed at last time we had a vacation down there um, so we spent 16 days in uh, the new orleans area went all the way through, down to Plaquemines parish um, all over st charles parish all over new orleans area into St. Bernard, which was one of the hardest hit areas down in the Ninth Ward. Um, It was really a rewarding opportunity to go out and really make a difference and really help people out. And the the people were very appreciative of it. Um, We talked to a lot of workers, talked to a lot of business owners on simple ways they could keep workers safe while they're doing recovery work. So that was a very rewarding opportunity. So when I came back from that, I was like, you know what, this is really interesting. I'd like to have some more classes in emergency management. I want to know more about it. Um, We had a partnership with the Office of Emergency Management here in Oklahoma, and they had an academy that they put all of their county emergency managers through, and they were revamping that program, and they wanted me to kind of sit in and just observe and and provide feedback. So I took that opportunity and ran with it, uh, made friends with the professor, the gentleman who was teaching it was the state training officer. And uh, he was about ready to retire, and his retirement plan was to develop a emergency management degree program for one of the local community colleges and teach that as an associate's degree, and um, they had grant money for it. So I signed up for that, and uh, within two years I had my degree in emergency management and a couple of certificates to go with it, and uh He and I have gotten to be really good friends because he's also a writer, so that has been a lot of fun to get to know him and and to spend time writing and and writing has always been something I've been doing in the background, Uh, even after I retired from the state went to work in uh, in private sector in a nonprofit. um, I've been writing in the background, so the Veritas Codex came about 2009. I was watching, you know, some paranormal TV show, you know, two o'clock in the morning thinking, you know, they never find anything. <laughs> what if they did and they can't talk about it? So that's kind of where the Veritas Codex came from. And that's, that's the, the series I'm writing now.
0: Outstanding. It's a, it's a long journey. And a lot of people don't understand the, the steps it takes to get that passion for emergency management. Uh, you went through multiple disasters to, to find that you needed more education in it to get that degree. Uh, Me, I I was in the military doing basically hazmat with chemicals and stuff. And that kind of transitioned into emergency management. So I got my degree in emergency management, then my master's in emergency management. And now I'm heading towards my doctorate in Homeland Security just because I just can't stop, I guess. But it's
1: that's terrific. It's it's addictive.
0: It is. And the challenge, I think, is what's addictive to me because I need something to challenge me every day. And probably the same for you. Mm -hmm. You want to see what else is out there. And then yeah. I, I figured you would start writing about maybe disasters and responding to them. But you, d- you wrote kind of the total opposite, the whole total whole opposite you know, way with your writing. Yeah. Uh, what made you decide to write that way?
1: Well, I have written some things that were related to disasters. I've got a couple of murder mysteries that I've kind of played off of some of the disaster scenes. I just haven't gotten those published yet. But I find, I find it's getting harder and harder as the years go by to process some of the things that I've seen and some of the things that I've had to do in that emergency management realm, um, especially the Murrow bombing, because that was so close. It involved children, it involved people at work. Uh, World Trade Center was was equally hard. And and I find every year as the anniversary rolls around uh, for the Murrow bombing disaster that that I I haven't fully coped with that. And so I keep thinking, okay, I'm going to go back and I'm going to revisit that and I'm going to write through that and every time I start, I can't finish, so at some point, I know that I will be able to go through and tell some of that story, um, but I'm just not there yet.
0: I think we visited the Murrah, the actual memorial, the day before they executed uh, Timothy McVeigh. We were driving down to Texas, and we stopped there, and I brought my daughter there with us. I think she was five or six at the time, so she really didn't understand what was going on, so I tried to explain it to her, and we didn't, we didn't know that's what the day was because I was in, with the Army. We never really paid attention to big world news. And then I just asked someone right. why there were so many people there and so many people were gathering around. And they told me, I was well, like, we need to get away from here because it's going to be a pretty passionate day tomorrow here. Let's keep yeah, moving down. Sure. So I know the anniversary is yeah. probably hurt each year there. He just digs up those old wounds. It
1: does. And and that museum, what they've done there is absolutely fantastic. I mean, it is just such a heartfelt tribute to those people who died and 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 to remember you know a city that was changed forever um I've actually gone through that museum on a couple of occasions and I actually my hard hat in there because we donated a bunch of extra hard hats wow. to the first responders that came down and uh one of them donated it back to the museum so my hard hat is in the museum
0: oh wow I can go there say I've seen that person <laughs> <laughs> that's outstanding I mean it's bad that that had to go in the museum, but if there is a museum to begin with, well, it's good that you were able to find your place in that history of the hard yeah, work you it's did. It's
1: absolutely appropriate that it's there. Yeah. I've always kind of considered myself a third responder because the, the role that I play, you know, I'm not a firefighter. I'm not an EMT. I'm not going to be the boots on the ground when it first happens. I'm going to be coming in when the workers are doing the cleanup because my job is to protect that worker and make sure that they're doing everything they can not to become another statistic, not to become an injured worker on a job site like that. Um, There's been enough tragedy. There's no need for for anybody else to get hurt. So uh, sometimes that can be a real challenge because the mentality becomes, let's hurry up and get this back to some kind of a normal, even if it's a new normal. Um, And sometimes they do that at the expense of everything. And that's unfortunate.
0: And I think you said, you mentioned that earlier with 9-11, when you went got there and the first responders there, they they were digging so hard to try to find uh, their the friends that were still under the rubble or their coworkers. And they wanted to do everything they could, that they were really risking their lives. And it really yeah. takes an outside voice to say, hey, look at what you're doing. The third order effect is you're not going to be with us anymore. Or something's bad going to be right. happening to you and your family won't have you. And, and a lot of them, I'm sure they give a little pushback to you. Is there any 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 pushback stories?
1: Uh, yeah, quite a few. We had uh, one of the things that we would do and when there was a um, first responders body recovered, they would always do a ceremony to remove the body from the site. Uh, and everybody that was working down in the pit would leave. We'd have to go up the ramp um, and we would all stand around the uh, exterior uh, overlooking the pit while they'd bring out the coffin draped in a flag. It was a very somber ceremony. It was an appropriate uh, remembrance for those first responders. Um, my partner who was from Boston he and I were standing uh, at the top of the pit during one of those ceremonies and uh, there was a rabbi there was a with one of the first responder units and I honestly can't remember which one but he was taking pictures and there were only certain people who were allowed to take pictures we weren't allowed to take pictures so um, he was taking pictures and he decided he couldn't get a good shot and he climbed out over the guardrail And he's on a piece of concrete that's undercut. There's nothing underneath that's supporting it. And he's outside of the safety zone. So my partner reaches over and grabs him by his belt loop and pulls him back and says, you can take pictures from this side of the barricade. And I have never heard anybody cuss somebody out so effectively. Um, (laughs) And it was a rabbi. (laughs) It's like you can cuss this out all you want but you're going to do it from this side of the barricade I'm sorry this is for your safety so you know we did get some pushback like that
0: I'm sure a rabbi cursing at you had to be an eye-opener and a man of the cloth going a little uh, a little passion throw a little passion at you and had to get everyone yeah. a, little, a little far up but still you got the job done and helped him save him from himself
1: yeah yeah something completely unexpected but you know it, it was such a passion time. Everybody was there for a purpose. You know, we had a higher calling when we got called to that kind of an event. And so, it, you know, we got, we got just as passionate about safety as they did about trying to accomplish their mission too. So uh, I felt like it was fair and even balanced, you know, he can cuss all he wants and you can call me whatever you want to, but you'll do it on this side of the barricade.
0: And at the end of the day, he probably thought back and said, those people actually saved me. Thank you. And he made it, he probably prayed that so. later. <laughs> I hope so. <laughs> so he he had an eye opener, I'd like to say. Yeah. So you said you were always a writer in the background. Was there someone that was like a mentor when you were younger that you really wanted to be like? Maybe from school or something. And said, "I want to write," and or or just it just got you
1: a couple I I, my mother was a huge um reader she always loved books my grandfather was a fantastic storyteller I mean even when I was two and three years old I'd climb up in his lap and I'd say granddaddy tell me a yarn you know tell me a story and so he was always he had probably maybe a dozen of them that he'd tell over and over again and I never got tired of them so I always loved stories um and I remember going one night with my mother to pay the rent and our landlord was an attorney and I I didn't really know what that meant I was probably four or five years old, but we walked into the house it was right at Christmas and they were having a party. Uh, And so she went in, you know, I went in with her and um, we're standing in the entryway and of course the Christmas tree, you know, goes all the way up to the ceiling and, you know, the house smells of, you know, all wonderful things, you know, gingerbread and, uh, you know, food and, um, you know, there's a party going on and I look over and there is a whole room full of these leather bound books just the whole room is just wall to wall cases And I thought, oh, my gosh, this must be the richest man in the world. He has a whole room just for books. Now, I had no idea they were all law books. They could have been encyclopedias for all I care, because I loved encyclopedias even as a little kid. Uh, But I just thought, man, he must be the richest person in the whole world. So when we got home, I, I remember asking my mother if we were poor. And she's like, oh, honey, why would you think we're poor? I said, well, that guy had a room full of books, and we don't even have a bookshelf. Uh, So shortly after that, we got a shelf, and I never had to ask twice for a book. So my mother really inspired a love for books uh, and and really encouraged me. Uh, I would get, you know, I got a library card, and I would go to the library, and I would just walk through the rows and rows and rows and rows rows of books. And I thought, wow, this is the greatest place ever. Um, And I couldn't find a book I wanted. My mom was like, well, I guess that just means you'll have to write it yourself. So I wrote my first book at six. Wow. Um, you know, I did the cardboard cover, the string bindings, everything. I don't remember what it was about. I gave him his Christmas presents to all my friends and family. And um, it's just something I have a very fond memory of. So I've always, I think I've always been a writer. Um, I had an English teacher wrote in my yearbook. I want to say she was ninth or 10th grade English teacher in high school, wrote in my yearbook. I don't know if you're gifted or touched. Keep writing and let's find out. And so she really encouraged me to really consider writing as something I could do. I never really thought about it as a career. You know, I knew about, you know, poor writers in their little offices, you know, never getting out, never, you know, never seeing great success. And uh, I, I, I didn't really think that that could be something I could do as a career. So I kind of let life lead me where it went. And, and and the whole safety gig fell into my lap. And the whole time I'm doing safety, I think, you know, I'm not sure what I want to be when I grow up, with the safety gig's working out pretty well. Um, and I said that up until the time I was about 50. <laughs> So, you know, I I retired from the state uh, about five years ago in retirement because I had an opportunity to land in my lap at a nonprofit. Um, And so I've been doing this job for about five years now and I get to teach safety, which is something I'm passionate about. I think OSHA record keeping is probably my favorite topic to teach and not, not a lot of people can say that, but I really do love uh, the record keeping side, because you can learn so much from, from documenting your injuries and illnesses in a consistent fashion, and then taking that data and analyzing it to make your workplace safer. So um, I'm a bit of a safety nerd when it comes to, to record keeping. I, I teach two or three classes at least a year, if not more. And uh, so I'm, I'm, I'm pretty passionate about that.
0: That is something you don't hear a lot of people say record keeping is a fun thing to teach. <laughs> it's not usually a fun class. There's got to gotta
1: be somebody that loves it. So why not me?
0: <laughs> and you took the reins. You went with it. That's awesome.
1: Yeah, exactly. So, you know, I've, I've always been writing and I, I've always had an interest in the paranormal. Um, I grew up, I lived for a while in the Pacific Northwest. Um, and I think Bigfoot was really the first monster that I remember hearing anything about. Um so I thought, well, when I'm going to write this paranormal series, that's where we'll start is with Bigfoot. So the Veritas Codex sends a television paranormal investigation team out on the hunt for Bigfoot and uh, mayhem and mystery ensues.
0: <laughs> so there's all three books follow that suit or you change, uh, I guess, the main aspect of it in each one.
1: They go on a different investigation every time. And, and there are uh, three books that are currently out. The first book is The Veritas Codex with The Hunt for Bigfoot. The second one, uh, and it's set about 2009. That's the year that it's kind of set in. Uh, in the second book, it's 2012 and the Mayan apocalypse is coming. And of course, you know, they know it's not the end of the world, but the TV network is dead set on doing a television show about it. So they have to go down and do a show and they uncover, um, international intrigue and mystery and a murder that has occurred and uh, their antiquities being stolen and, and, you know, being scientists as well as television show hosts, they, they want to make sure that they get those antiquities back and protect the, the history of the, of the region. Um, my main character is Dr. Lauren Grayson. She's a biological anthropologist, so she's very science-minded. Her partner uh, is Rowan Pierce. He's a former military uh, medic, And he kind of fell into the team by accident and has fallen in love with his co-host. And she's initially not wanting anybody to know about it. And of course they find, everybody finds out, everybody knows. Uh, And in the second book, they're married and, you know, moving forward with their life Uh, in the third book, Lauren is forced to uh, face some of her own family history. She's got a brother that she's never really been able to get along with. Um, He's a, uh, He's a scientist working for NASA, he's a contractor working for NASA, uh, and he builds radio telescopes, and he has picked up a, a signal from outer space that is suspicious, and one of his colleagues is murdered, and now they're after him. And so he's always teased her that he's going to find aliens before she does. And so he goes to her when he needs help. So they have to reconcile their relationship and the whole family drama that's been going on in their family for years that nobody wants to talk about. So they're going to have to deal with that before they can move forward. So the Alien Accord is uh, a search for aliens in outer space. Oh, wow. Or maybe they're here.
0: Even, they're probably both. New Mexico. <laughs> with your books, have you been invited to any of the paranormal conferences to either have a booth or speak?
1: Yeah, actually, a couple of times I've I've had several booths. One of my goals is to get to go to the big Bigfoot Festival in Hanobia, Oklahoma, that's held every fall, but it never fails. That's the week I'm somewhere else. Um, This year I was in Seattle and uh, up at Mount St. Helens doing my own research, Um, but I have done a couple of paranormal um, conferences here in Oklahoma. There's one in Las Vegas I wanted to go to. And I just couldn't make it work with my schedule. I figure when I fully retire, uh, maybe in another five years or so, uh, I'll have more time to be able to do that. But I try to hit as many of the local ones as I can. I haven't been asked to be a speaker yet, but I've appeared on a number of paranormal podcasts. So the paranormal community has been very welcoming, very engaging. Um, I've made some really good friends through it. Uh, the Instagram community, I, I had never been on Instagram before a couple of years ago. And so I kind of started paying attention a little bit more to Instagram. And that's where I found the paranormal community had kind of gravitated to. So I spend a lot of time on Instagram with my social media marketing and, and just reaching out and making connections and making friends. And, you know, there's no telling sometimes where those connections can lead to.
0: Definitely. and I know uh, when you watch all the shows on like uh, Discovery or Travel, there's so many paranormal shows now. I mean, you, everyone thinks it's just ghosts, but there's Also alien hunters, there's Bigfoot hunters, there's the Oak Island people always looking for stuff, I'm not even sure what they're looking for, they never find Um, anything on on that show, but I'm sure people watch it for no reason, but that one's there, Uh, and they're all, they all respect each other, you never hear them naysaying each other, there's all different techniques in every investigation, Mm -hmm. even in uh, regular jobs, there's different investigation techniques. Has anyone ever Mm -hmm. reached out and said, would you try to use this in your book, my technique in your book, or
1: everybody wants to know what's next you know hey can you can you work this into a book at some point and and occasionally i'll actually make that happen um i've actually already written 12 books in the series and i'm working on another one that i am literally this close to finishing i probably will finish it this week Uh, but i don't write in order so my books aren't always written one after the other sometimes i'll write one and i'll leave a gap of time knowing that an idea will come to me later if i just let it let it ride and so right now, this one that I'm writing is going to appear as book six. And then that pushes back all the other books. So I can't number them. And I don't ever name them until the publisher gets involved, because the publisher always has their own ideas of what the title should be. Because the vertex wasn't my first choice. I have to say I'm very happy with it. Um, and so now we kind of have a naming convention that we've established, you know, it's the, and then two words. And that's it
0: <laughs> so
1: it kind of it limits it but it also opens up a whole lot of opportunities that i never thought of on my own so i always let my publisher provide some feedback i'll i'll throw out a list and he'll go through the list and say okay i like this but what about this and he'll throw back his list and so you know it becomes a negotiation and it, it all works out I've, I've been very happy with all titles so far um the fourth book is the monk's grimoire and that one will be out after the first of the year
0: awesome so you just got them all pumped up and lined up and you have them all out there. You just got to get them numbered and set and set and titled. I mean, that's good. That's outstanding. You can sit back relax and enjoy the show for a little bit, but you won't. Oh yeah.
1: There's always editing to do yeah. and there's always promotion to do. There's always something to be done. So, you know, I, I, I appear at writers conferences. I, I teach uh, writing as well. I, you know, I'm not a, a trained uh, English major or anything like that, but I'll, I'll go out and talk about, you know, lessons learned, you know, that after action review, I did after the first year of being a writer, we learned that in emergency management. So I applied that to my writing. It's like, okay, here's what I've learned over the last year. And I've done a number of lectures on that, just to help first-time writers that are just getting their feet wet, um, you know, helping them through the process. I, you know, the job of any leader is to help create new leaders and the same is true for writers. So I try to pay it forward as much as I can.
0: That's exactly right. And uh, how did you uh, stumble upon your publisher? How did you wind up getting published to begin with?
1: That's an interesting story. I uh, I am very lucky to live in Oklahoma City, where we have a very rich writing community and uh, there's a gentleman here by the name of William Bernhardt who's a 55 times best-selling author. Uh, he writes legal thrillers and he hosted a, a writers uh, conference at the college where I was a student. It was the Sneaker Writers Conference and so or the, I guess at the time it was the Rose State Writers Conference um, and so I got a chance to go to that and I started really learning the craft and really focusing on, okay, if I'm going to, if I'm serious about this, this, the things I need. to do. So I started going to those writers conferences and I started learning the craft, learning, you know, learning all the mistakes I had already figured out how to make and then learning how to fix them. Um, Because I had, I had made a lot of mistakes, you know, you know, a rookie writer uh, needs to learn to develop. So I'm, I'm always trying to find ways to improve. So I started going to that and I went to that for about three years uh, and moved over and now it's the um, it's WriterCon con is what they call it now and it's held every weekend every Labor Day weekend in downtown Oklahoma City I think we're moving to a new hotel next year, but I was sitting at the conference in 2019. And I'm, you know, I'm a copious note taker, so I'm taking notes, I've got my little iPad, I'm just typing away as fast as I can, because I type 145 words a minute, I can't just write notes, I've got to type them, because my brain can't keep up. Um, And I I wrote in my notes, I am going to do something this year, that will get me invited to be a speaker at WriterCon 2020. I don't know what it is, I don't know how I'm going to do it, but I'm going to do something. And I had... Pitched a manuscript that year to a local agent uh, who actually asked me for a copy of the full manuscript. And it was actually a piece of women's fiction uh, that I had written just before I wrote the, Veritas, the first book of the Veritas Codex. Um, and she asked for the full manuscript, which is like winning the lottery for an author. You know, you, they usually want the 10 pages chapter. You know, they just want to kind of get a sample of what you write. If they ask for a full, they're really interested in it and they want to read the whole thing. And that's a huge investment in their time. So you have to appreciate that. So I got requested for a full. And unfortunately, it was a no, uh, but she gave me some great feedback. You know, here's what I liked about the story. And from a marketing standpoint, I think it'd be more marketable if you did this. Um, But it's a lot like a book that I wrote myself. And that's why I was interested. And I, you know, that was huge for me. It was was a a major accomplishment. And um, at the writers conference in 2019 they announced that there's going to be a writer's cruise writer con cruise and you it's like a workshop at sea oh. and um my husband's always up for adventure so I said hey what do you think about taking a cruise we've never done that before he goes yeah, I kind of like to do that I think it'd be fun I said what if it was a writer's cruise and he goes well you're you gonna do something with your books and I'm like well yeah I would I would send one of them in and they would kind of give you some critiques on it. Then you workshop it, you figure out how to fix the problems. Then how do you market? And you basically walk away with a marketing plan for the book. And I'm thinking if I'm going to self-publish anyway, which I decided that was probably going to be my path. I just, I couldn't stand the rejection. (laughs) I'm just going to, I'm just going to do this by myself. Um, I thought, well, if I'm going to self-publish, I need that marketing plan. I need to have those kinds of things worked out in my head before I do it. And he says, okay, let's, let's go. And so that would, the conference in September. The cruise was in February, February of 2020. We left uh Houston out of Galveston and went down to Roatan. We went to Mexico. We got to go to Chichen Itza, which is where the second book is set. And I actually spent the day with the publisher at Chichen Itza, yeah. walking through the sites and you know just casually mentioning, "Oh, this is where Lauren does this, and you know Rowan does that, and they're they're you know the the mystery gets deeper, and you know he's just nodding, going, mm, okay." you know, he's wanting to look at the sites. You don't want to listen to me. So <laughs> we're walking through the site and, and, you know, we go back and we workshop that night and, um, you know, I'm thinking, okay, you know, I said the one book that scared me more than anything. Cause I didn't, I wrote the book for practice. I didn't think anybody would ever read it. I thought it was a little too crazy. <laughs> I didn't know how people would take it. Um, you know, going for Bigfoot, but I sent it anyway. And within a couple of weeks after the cruise, I had gotten a phone call, actually an email saying, Hey, I'm really interested in your series. Um, You know, if you're interested in my publishing company, it's brand new, but I think you would be a great fit for us. And I think we would be a great fit for you. We could help you, you know, get your other stuff published at some point, you know, maybe give you some pointers and help you along the way, but we could help you get started. Um, We'd like to, we'd like to buy the series. You
0: know, and so that's how I got my publisher. a cruise at sea. <laughs> wow! <laughs> I mean, that's win-win there for you and your family <laughs> for sure. <laughs> Definitely get to go on a on a cruise, see some sites, meet your publisher, and get published. That's outstanding. And yeah. yeah, we all so know good. that's not when how it always the lottery.
1: Happens. It never happens.
0: Yeah, that's not how it always happens for writers. But that's a that's a good news story right there. <laughs> Yeah, I think as you alluded to earlier, most of us think of the writer as the person sitting in a, a dusty room with a typewriter, or now a computer, just typing away and hoping and hoping and hoping and hoping until that one day one bites and someone says, "Hey, I think I like your stuff now." After 25 years of you submitting manuscripts to me, so this is that's outstanding for you that for that to happen to you. If you yeah, ran into a, in. if you ran into a young writer today, just uh, maybe mm-hmm. sitting having coffee, what would you tell them to do? to get going and get out of their own way?
1: I mean, probably the first bit of advice is, you know, first of all, don't quit. You know, if you're, if you cannot, I mean, for me, it hurts to not write. I feel like I go insane if I can't just, even if it's just sit down and jot down thoughts. Um, If I'm not, if I'm between, that's like the worst place for me to be because I, I feel like I'm in limbo. I know that there's an idea coming and I just have to go out and find it. So for me, that's the hardest thing. So first of all, I would tell them whatever you do, don't quit Because if you're meant to be a writer, you're going to write. And I don't believe in writer's block. It's just you haven't found the right idea yet. Um, My second bit of advice is don't make your passion wait for your courage to keep up. For me, I was afraid of what people would think. I was afraid that my stories weren't any good. I was afraid I wasn't a good writer. Uh, You know, that whole um, imposter syndrome is so very real for writers. and I think anybody who's artistic you know, you, you have your, you have your job and your job is your job and you need to focus on your job, but you've got to have your passion. You've got to have your hobbies and you have to make sure that your talents don't go to waste. So, you know, get out of your own way. I think for me, that was the biggest thing was I was the one standing in the way I could have, I could have accomplished anything I wanted, but I was scared. So getting out of my own way has been probably the biggest, I mean, the biggest increment in my success.
0: That's a, that's really good advice right there. I always say most people that just hit that wall and stop or like you said, someone tells them that's not what you should be doing. Okay. So I'll just put this, put my passion away and go work this nine to five because that's what the world wants me to do. I shouldn't be doing it. What I want to do. And that hurts a lot of really talented people. They fall by the wayside for that. So, yeah.
1: And there are ways you can make your work and your passions. <laughs> but they don't have to meld, but they can complement each other. I find I find little elements of my career finding their ways into my books Uh, with Rowan being a military medic. He's got a lot of safety background. So he's kind of the team safety officer, but there's times where he's not very good at it or he lets his better judgment get in his way. So, you know, they end up having to pay for some of those mistakes because they get passionate about what they're doing and they forget about the safety aspects that have to be followed. So, um, you know, and then sometimes I find myself at work thinking, you know, if, if people would just do this, their life could be, you know, the happy ending that they want. and You know, it's it's funny how two things just kind of interplay, um, not intentionally, but that's just sometimes how they how they lie.
0: Definitely. And uh, sometimes they like me, I have basically three different things going on at once with my day job, podcast, school and uh, and budgeting version writer now, too, as well. So I have well, four things really I have four different lives at once and trying to not interact in too much, but keep my writing from my doctorate totally separate because if I write like I write on my, for myself, I my, will not make it through a doctorate, right? Like that. So there's two different t- styles of writing. One I don't really believe is writing. It's just regurgitating. One is writing. So it's a totally different worlds. If someone exactly. uh, wants to reach out to you for advice to stay in the right path, how can they do
1: that? Well, I'm on all the social medias. I have a website, author Um, I'm sure you'll probably put them in the show notes because my name is not easy to spell. I recognize that. Yes. <laughs> um, I actually had somebody ask me if I was going to use a nom de plume when I published. And I said, why would I do that? I said, my name is Kulikowski. That's right up there with King and Coons. <laughs> and those are like two of my favorite authors. I'm, I'm a huge Dean Coons fan. And I walked into the book this weekend and looked for, was looking for copies of my book. Um, just to make sure they had plenty, because you know for the holidays I want to make sure they had enough. And I've been really promoting that you could buy books at my local bookstore that were autographed, and so I wanted to make sure they had them on on, on hand. And I look, and there's my book, Diana Gabaldon on one side, Dean Coons on the other. Oh yeah, this is the, this is the life right here. Because those were my two. Those are I love Diana Gabaldon too. She's fantastic. Um, so that was like okay we're, we're in good place. So um, uh, my website, my social media, like I said, I'm really active on this Instagram. I'm on Twitter. It's at Bakuli, B-K-O-O-L-I-E. Uh, funny little play on the name. Uh, and I'm on Facebook as well. So you can find me on social media, find me on my website. Um, Full Circle Bookstore is my local independent bookstore. And I always, um, I spend a lot of time in there. So I always make sure that they have copies on hand that um people want to buy an autographed copy of any of my books you can order them directly from full circle bookstore and they will ship anywhere
0: outstanding and like you said that your name is not going to be mistaken as someone else's Betsy Kulikowski there's probably not many of you out there I don't think there is the first one I've met in long time in my whole life and I'm just glad I didn't trip up the name too bad so that's good <laughs> you did <it> great <laughs> Well, Betsy, thank you for sharing your knowledge and your story with us here on the Misfit Nation. And I hope you have a great holiday season.
1: Thank you so much. And Merry Christmas to you and everybody out there.
0: Thank you. You know how we do this. Thanks for taking some of your time to spend with us on Misfit na- Nation. Be sure to hit that subscribe button and share the link as much as possible. If you want to, please become a supporter to help us carry this thing on. We appreciate you. If you know someone that brings that energy, has a great story, is an up-and-comer in any industry of music, in the arts, have them reach out to us on the TheMisfitNation.com. We will get back to them within one day and get them on here so they can share their story With the world. As always. Till next time. Be humble. Stay hungry. And keep hustling. Because we are. Fit Nation.